Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. There's a financial construct that we deal with on a daily basis. Many people are trying to get out from under it, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. However, you cannot escape it or its effects on our society today. So instead, you need to learn to be on the right side of it. We talk about debt, its effects, and how to overcome them and even take advantage of it today on The Whole Steward. This is a difficult topic because many people will say immediately, wait a minute, debt is bad, it's always bad, and doesn't the Bible say that debt is always bad and end of story, let's get out from under it and not ever deal with it again? But I want you to open your minds just a little bit today. And if you're tempted, whoa, 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 I can see where Andrew's going with this. He's about to say something that I'm not comfortable with. The red flag warnings are going off and you're saying, I got to get out of here and turn this podcast off now. Listen today and try to have an open mind to the constructs that I'm going to bring before you today. This will be a fascinating exercise for us, I think. I hope that we might be able to come at it from an angle that helps us understand and better take advantage of something that we honestly cannot escape in our society today. And why is that? Well, because our entire society is based on a credit system. And I'm going to get into the history behind that today and why we need to understand as whole stewards how this system works what its effects are on our wealth so that we can be better stewards. First, let's look at a simple definition of debt. Debt is simply borrowing something with the obligation to pay it back, and generally with interest. Interest is simply a fee that you pay to use something that belongs to somebody else. They loan you something for a time, and they have an interest in that because it really belongs to them, and they're interested to know that you're going to bring it back. Now, you may find yourself on either side of this equation, as the borrower or the lender. And I will show you, if you're in America at the beginning of the 21st century, you are on one side of this equation at any given time. And you may be on both sides of the equation in some areas at any given time. So the question then arises, what does God say about being on one side or the other of this equation? What are his instructions? What is the heart of what he desires? And I can tell you from scripture, it does not specifically condemn being on one side or the other of this equation. In fact, what the Bible brings us are instructions on how to be on one side or the other of this equation. If you're interested in what God desires in this area, I suggest looking to the Pentateuch as a starting point to see the heart of God. So basically, God reveals to Moses some laws for how he expects his people to behave, and he wants them to behave in a manner according to his holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the laws reflect the nature of God. If you want to get a deeper dive on what God expects of his people and their interactions, I would read chapter 20 of Exodus through chapter 23, verse 9, and you can really get a sense of what God wants for his people in fairness, equity, justice. 
But for now, I'll just touch on a couple of verses that have to do with borrowing and lending, since that's our topic for today. Exodus chapter 22, 14 says, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So we have here a situation where someone is borrowing something from his neighbor, and it says there anything from his neighbor, and it's either injured or dies. Now, what's that all about? Well, the implication there is you were borrowing maybe an animal, and it was either injured or dies. That would be the equivalent of, like, our cars and our tractors today. If you borrow a car and it was either damaged or destroyed, for example. The verse says, you shall make full restitution. So God wants you to be responsible for what you're borrowing while you're borrowing it. And that includes anything that you borrow from your neighbor. So that's money or wealth or possessions or anything that you're borrowing from your neighbor. It's interesting that it says, if the owner was with it, he shall not make full restitution. So the owner is standing right next to you or is with you and it breaks down while you're using it, that's not really something that you're supposed to be responsible for. But if you were borrowing it, and it was on your watch, and you were in charge of it, and it breaks, you need to make full restitution for it. So that's a big risk that you're taking on. When you're borrowing something from somebody, you need to think about how you are responsible for it. Also notice there that if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So you can pay a fee to use something that belongs to somebody else for a time, and you just need to pay the fee for it. That's all there is to it. Be willing and able and ready to pay that fee. In the case of borrowing money, that fee is generally the interest. That's the largest portion of it. However, there are also sometimes origination fees and early termination fees, so make sure you understand the terms very well. On the other side of the equation, we see in Exodus 22, the same chapter, verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. God is concerned that you do not act like a money lender to those in a dire strait. That is the heart of God. And you see also, if you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So God is wanting us, his people, to be compassionate, and as those who could be in a position to lend to others, to not exact and take advantage of the poor among us, as well as being fair with what we take as collateral, and to not take advantage of a man who has very little collateral. If all he had was his cloak, to give it back to him before the day ends. And God says, If you don't do this, I will hear when he cries to me because I am compassionate. He wants us to be compassionate too. So let us be that way as whole stewards. Now the general implication is that if you're going to be on one side or the other, it's better to be on the lending side than the borrowing side because 
If you're on the lending side, that means you have the capital that somebody else needs and you're able to meet that need. You're also generally on the receiving end of the interest or the fees that would be paid in that case toward the lender. And so that is a financial advantage to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is reiterating the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience to his people Israel as they come into the land. And you can see there that in verse 12, God says, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. So God is articulating the blessings that would come with being given these things, these earthly possessions by God, in accordance with the obedience that they are manifesting. And he says, you will be on the lending side to many nations, and you shall not borrow. So now they are at an advantage putting out the wealth they have to collect the fees and the interest that comes back to them. On the flip side, he, in the section for curses, for disobedience, in chapter 28, verse 43, the sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. So here you see the curses being that now you're going to have to borrow from him. He's going to be the lender, the sojourner among you, and you will end up being the borrower and you get pushed lower and lower. Now, the Bible does not say that the wicked borrow. The Bible says this, Psalm 37, verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back but the righteous is generous and gives. You see, wickedness in God's eyes is borrowing and not paying back. Or if you were to borrow something and it were to be damaged on your watch, to not make full restitution. So you see, borrowing can be fairly risky. That's why we have things like insurance. The lenders in our day require you to have insurance when you borrow money, say, for a car or something like that, they require you to carry insurance on the car. Why? Because they know that it's risky. If that car is damaged while it's on your watch, they don't necessarily expect you to be keeping full restitution worth laying around in your bank account. So they require you to have the to pay for the insurance, which will cover the cost of the restitution should you total the car. So you see, borrowing is not necessarily wrong, but in many cases, it's not a wise thing to do because you become beholden to having to return that and often you're paying the fees that go with it, the interest or the origination fees or whatever that may be. You are responsible for what you're using while you're using it and you need to return it in full according to the terms laid in the agreement. I remember when I was younger and still in school, we had an event that had a bunch of seminars and breakout sessions that 
were on various topics, and one of them was finances. I remember attending that one. I don't remember the name of the speaker, but I do remember one specific thing that he talked about, which was trying to have different strategies to be a better steward of your finances. His suggestion was to, instead of spending money on something that maybe you can't afford, to borrow it instead. Now, I remember taking that away. That's the only thing I remember from the the seminar. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a strategy where you can save money by borrowing something that somebody else owns and then not having to spend the money yourself. But I hope you can see from this the, the danger and the risk and also the subtlety of what's happening here. So you have somebody here who has a thing of value and you want to use that thing of value, but you don't want to spend and or exchange your own value to purchase that thing for yourself, so you use somebody else's for a time. Now, it is very clear that you are responsible for that thing. And the interesting thing is, if you're borrowing something for free from people, you're using their value for a time, and basically, if you're not paying any interest, you're presuming upon their kindness. They spent time, money, and effort to obtain that thing, and now you're using it for free. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Be careful that you don't find yourself saying borrowing money is a bad thing, but you can borrow other things all day from people and not worry about it. As a whole steward, you really kind of know that there's not really any difference between the value that you have in your financial column versus the value you have in your material possessions versus the value you have in your other areas as well. You're going to borrow from people in a lot of different cases, in a lot of different ways. You need to make sure that you go about your borrowing in a godly manner, according to what God desires in your heart. And we've seen a little bit of that today, and I hope it was helpful. If you're on the lending side, you there are also a lot of pitfalls as a lender. If you're going to lend to somebody... Make sure your expectations are reasonable and equitable. Do not expect to make interest on the poor. Also, be a fair lender. Do not gouge people with the interest. I can tell you, credit cards and their interest rates are really gouging. But why? Why is that? Well, they're generally uncollateralized. So the credit card companies are charging a high rate of interest to compensate for the risk that they're taking, and people are abusing the easy access to credit. They're going into credit card debt. If you're going into credit card debt, you're paying very high interest rates. Now, I know some people can use credit cards in a way that is creative, and there's 0% interest credit cards for a certain amount of time, and they can take advantage of those things. That's a level of sophistication that I'm not talking about. But again, It's wise to be very careful about what you're doing with other people's things. Now, I wish I had time to get into it, but the New Testament reaffirms all of the things we've been talking about. It always does. Jesus came and taught on the subject quite a bit, and the New Testament in general has a lot to say on these things. And I can tell you, Jesus reaffirmed and fulfilled. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it many of the things written and the things that we've studied today. We will dive into one of those next week for our Wealth in the Bible series. However, for today, I hope I've laid a foundation for being a borrower or a lender. Now, you might be saying, 
hey, Andrew, uh, I just don't want to participate on either side. I'm not going to be a borrower. I'm just going to pay cash for everything. I'm going to pay cash for my car. I'm going to pay cash for my house. I'm going to pay cash for my, my furniture and my food and ev everything I need to pay uh, for, I will pay for with cash. You might also shy away from being a lender because of the risks involved, but you do need to be generous and lend to those who ask of you. You also should be a lender because investing is a form of lending. When you invest capital, you are putting your value that you have out there and expecting a return on it. Or perhaps you say, I'm only going to be a lender. There are a lot of things to be considered as a lender. We weren't able to cover all of them, but we did cover some of them today. What I want to cover next is how you fit into a system in a society that is entirely based on credit. This whole relationship between the lenders and the debtors. There are those who are extending the credit. There are those who are receiving the credit. And you, as a whole steward, should understand who's on what side of what equation and how you fit in. You are either a lender or a debtor, and I will show you that in just a minute, how to optimize it, take advantage of it, next on The Whole Steward. Hey there, it's Andrew. I pour a lot into The Whole Steward, and I'm so humbled you're listening. Did you know I regularly post new articles to our website? I also send the Holistic Approach to Wealth newsletter once a week, to which you can subscribe at thewholesteward.com newsletter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, would you share it with a friend or leave us a review? I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for listening. Now, as you think about society and which side of the equation you fit on in the various situations you find yourself, I want to bring before you some interesting things that I've learned about our monetary system and how it works. I have in front of me a U.S. dollar. It is a $1 bill. I want to read to you what it says on the dollar bill. You can pull out a dollar right now and follow along if you'd like, or if you're driving or whatever else, please don't do that, only if it's safe. But here's what it says on the dollar. It says, Federal Reserve Note, the United States of America. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Then there's a seal that says, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, California. I have a picture of George Washington in the center. On the right, it says Washington, D.C., the Department of the Treasury, 1789, with the word one. It also has two signatures on it, one by the Treasurer of the United States and the other by the Secretary of the Treasury. And then at the bottom, it says one dollar. So why am I going through this detail? Well, what I want you to see is that you are holding in your hand a banknote. It is a Federal Reserve note. Now, you use it on a daily basis as legal tender, but this is a Federal Reserve note. 
I do not have time here to go into the history of the Federal Reserve. We'll save that for a future episode. However, it's important to understand what your relationship is with the Federal Reserve since you are holding Federal Reserve notes. If you have any dollars in your possession, you basically are holding banknotes. So it would be a good thing to understand what does that note provide? What does it stand for? And how does it work? What makes me think that I can walk down to the grocery store, hand the clerk this note, and they will hand me something of value? For example, like a candy bar. Can you even get a candy bar for a dollar? I don't even know. I don't really eat candy. What gives it its value? What gives it its intrinsic value? Well, it doesn't really have any. It's just a piece of paper. Now, I won't go all the way back in history, but I will go back just over 100 years ago where the U.S. dollar used to be a certificate of deposit. Prior to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, the U.S. Treasury would mint money. And one of the things they minted was a silver dollar. This could be used to buy and sell in the economy. And because it was made out of silver, it had intrinsic value. However, the government needed to fund some big undertakings. For example, a war like the Civil War. And what they did in order to fund that was they would issue a certificate of deposit if you wanted to loan your silver dollar to the federal government. I have in front of me a silver dollar certificate from the 1920s, which reads like this. Silver certificate. This certifies that there has been deposited in the treasury of the United States of America one silver dollar, payable to the bearer on demand. And then there's a picture of George Washington and some signatures from the important people at the treasury, like the secretary of the treasury. It also says... This certificate is receivable for all public dues, and when so received, may be reissued. So you could pay your taxes with this or other public debts. And so you were a holder of a certificate of deposit. Later on in the 1935 series, they added to the left-hand side that this certificate is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So therefore, you could use it to buy and sell, just as you would use a silver dollar. They continued to issue the silver certificates all the way into the mid-1960s when they decided to end the Silver Purchase Act because they were predicting a shortage in silver bullion, that is, silver coins. The change was very subtle. If you look at the U.S. dollar, it looks very similar to the silver certificate. However, now at the top, it says Federal Reserve Note, the United States of America. And so that is when we switch to Federal Reserve Notes. Now, why should you concern yourself with this? Well, the Federal Reserve can create dollars whenever they want. They can just print money. They can also do M2, which is dollars in the computer systems, which are representative of the same things that a paper dollar would be. However, they can just create them. The Federal Reserve is not a public entity. They are a group of 12 banks that are private banks, and they create and control the currency. When they create currency, that causes the 
value of the currency to go down. So let's say there were $100 in existence altogether, and you had all $100 sitting under your mattress. Well, the Federal Reserve says, well, I want $100 too, and so they create $100. Ha ha, see, now we have $100 and you do too. There are $200 now in existence. However, no intrinsic value was created, so the value of the currency and what they could buy was cut in half. So now you really only have $50 worth of purchasing power, and the Federal Reserve has $50 worth of purchasing power. No skin off their back because they didn't have to earn that money. You, on the other hand, worked hard for those $100, and now they're only worth $50. You still have 100 nominal dollars, which means in name only. But the purchasing power went down. So the people at the Federal Reserve have the ability to manipulate the value of the note and cause its value to go down by issuing more of them. So what happens is the Federal Reserve issues the notes. The government comes along and buys those notes by selling U.S. Treasury bonds. So the government, in order to fund its operations when it's spending more than it's bringing in in taxes, has to issue debt, and that is in the form of U.S. Treasury bonds. So now the Federal Reserve holds these bonds for which the government owes interest on. So now the government needs to pay the Federal Reserve interest on the U.S. Treasury bonds. Once the government has the dollars in their possession, they go and spend it into the economy. For example, they have defense spending and infrastructure spending. They have Medicare spending. And most recently, in recent years, they were depositing the money directly into your accounts. They are putting the money in that way to work in the economy. So then the dollars circulate and everybody's dollars go down in value. So who are the winners and losers of all this debt that's being issued? Well, the Federal Reserve is a winner because, number one, they have the right to just create money whenever they want to. And number two... They're earning interest on the treasuries that they bought with their newly created money that the government is paying them. And that is maybe with tax dollars and future dollars. Now, if the Federal Reserve makes a profit after all its expenses are paid, it pays the excess profit back into the treasury. The government is a winner because they can borrow money by issuing treasury bonds and they can spend much more than they make. Let's look at who might be losers in this situation. You and I who have and hold these Federal Reserve notes are losers. Why? Because the U.S. dollar is losing its value. To give you an example, let's say you're at In-N-Out and there's three people there. There's one burger left and you're all super hungry. Each one of you has one dollar. And so what does the burger get bid to? Well, it gets bid up to $1. But somebody comes along and says, hey, they hand out nine more dollars to each one of you. Well, now what does the burger get bid up to? Well, it's going to get bid up to $10 because each one of you has 10 and that's your highest bid. However, the way it happens in real life is 
Some people don't get handed more dollars and other people do. So you could be the one standing there and still have only one dollar, but the other person now has nine more dollars, so they bid the price up to ten dollars. The burger is still worth what it is. It's just a hamburger. But you're only able to bid $1 because that's all you have. But your dollars aren't worth as much anymore. Now there's other people bidding more because they have more dollars. Think about this for a second. 40% of the dollars in existence have come into existence in the last three years. That means there are more dollars chasing the same goods and services. Now this has all been an oversimplification of how the monetary system works. It's much more complicated than that because we are involved in a global economy, not just the U.S., and so there are many factors that play into the value of the U.S. dollar. But at a very basic level, if you have more dollars chasing the same goods, they're going to be worth less. Now, before I wrap up, I just want to go over what I talked about earlier where if you want to avoid using debt or being a lender, it is impossible to do because of what I've shown you on how our economy is based on credit. These pieces of paper are all based on credit, the full faith and credit of the United States, because the government is borrowing those dollars and then putting them into circulation and you're using them. It is all mashed together and the value of the notes that you hold are directly correlated to the issuance of debt. Now what does smart money do to get around this, to make up for it? Well, you would need to earn the inflation rate worth of interest every year. And if you don't, you are losing money right out of your bank account, right out of your wallet. You are losing purchasing power. Banks, on the other hand, have a very interesting position. They will take your deposit. So you take your $10 to the bank, you put it in there, they take your deposit, and they will pay you a little bit of interest. It is nowhere near the inflation rate. However, they're going to lend it out at a much higher rate. So they're paying you 0.05% and they're lending it out at 3.5%. So they're going to make what's called positive arbitrage. That is the difference in the interest rate at which they are paying you as the depositor versus what they are getting paid as the lender. Now, when they hand you back the money, that money is worth less because of inflation. So you lose out because you were only making 0.05%. That's not the inflation rate. They don't care because they just handed you back the same number of dollars you deposited with very little interest, and yet they made the spread in arbitrage for the entire time that it was deposited and loaned out to someone else. So let's do a quick thought exercise. If you had deposited $1 in the bank and earned zero interest since the year 1913, that dollar today would have four cents worth of purchasing power. On the flip side, if you had borrowed one dollar in 1913 and paid 0% interest, today that debt would be worth four cents. So you would only need about four cents worth of purchasing power to pay that debt off. Both borrowers and lenders, savers and spenders, 
are all affected by the economy of debt. Now, let's look at last year, for example. The inflation rate officially was 6.5%. Now, there's a lot of reason to believe that it's higher. We'll cover that on a later episode. But taking the official number, if you had deposited $100 in the bank and at an inflation rate of 6.5%, your purchasing power now is only... $93.90. You lost $6.10 of purchasing power just by saving that money. On the flip side, if you had borrowed $100 last year and made no principal payments, your debt would now be worth $93.90. Now let's say you paid a 5% interest rate over the year on that $100. That would be $5 in interest. So, in the end, you borrowed $100, you returned back to the lender $105. However, the $105 is only worth $98.59. So, that leaves you with $1.41 in profit, worth of purchasing power. Now, that is true because the inflation rate was higher than the interest rate. You were paying interest, but the dollars were inflating away faster than that. You are getting paid to borrow. Now, in general, the interest rates should be above the inflation rate. In that case, we call it a positive real interest rate. If real interest rates are negative, that means they are below the inflation rate. So which side of the equation do you want to be on? Do you want to be a depositor that holds Federal Reserve notes that are losing value and you give them to a bank that pays you little to no interest? That bank is going to turn around and lend those dollars right out to somebody else at a higher interest rate, which is the arbitrage they create. Or you could do what the banks do. You could be the lender who borrows that money from the depositors and puts it to work at a higher interest rate, at a positive arbitrage. Another very obvious effect of the credit-based economy is prices. $40,000, for a car. One, two, three hundred thousand, a million dollars or so for a house. These prices could never stand if people had to pay cash, if they had to pay in silver dollars. However, because of the access to credit, that drives the prices up. And so you see another effect of this credit-based economy. If you saved a rainy day fund, let's say you have $20,000 in the fund, next year it might only be worth $19,000 or $18,000. The next year, $17,000. The next year, $16,000. You're going to be losing money out of it. You're going to have to add money to it every year just to keep it at the same level of purchasing power. So what can you do about it then? If you are thinking about the system that you find yourself in, not by choice, and it can't last forever, but while it does, we need to be savvy. We need to be shrewd. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us. And to do that, we need to understand how the system works and then make choices based on that. Number one, I started with moving my emergency fund 
to a stable, liquid, and good investment vehicle that can earn a return that keeps up with inflation. Number two, we can invest in things that retain their intrinsic value. Number three, we can use our funds to do what the banks do and create positive arbitrage. Since we find ourselves in this lending environment, you can learn to do what the banks do. You can either sit on one end and hand the money over to the banks. They're going to turn right around and lend it out to somebody else and make a positive arbitrage. That somebody else could be you. For example, you could be on the receiving end of those funds in terms of a mortgage and buy an investment property. If your interest rate is about 6% and your return on the investment is 9%, you will be making a positive arbitrage. Or you simply just find an investment that is a decent return. And that is not U.S. Federal Reserve notes. The Federal Reserve has stated publicly that their goal is to have those notes lose value by 2% every year. And in recent years, it's been faster than that. So we need to find a better solution. I hope you found this helpful today. We looked at the lender and debtor equation. Then we looked at the Federal Reserve and the system of credit that we find ourselves in. And then I showed you some practical ways that you might be able to navigate around that. We'll look deeper into those things in the future, but for now, I hope you understand the importance of it. If you have a bone to pick with me or any questions at all about today's episode or any of the past episodes, please send them in. I want to answer your questions on the show. Next week is another Wealth in the Bible series, and we'll be looking to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. That is the parable of the ten minas on the whole steward. Now that you know more, go out and grow more. All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy, so you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.